Good morning, Calvary. My name is Thomas. If we haven't met, I'm the other guy in the video. Tom was in there with me last week, and it's a joy to be able to think about that there's a reality of an eerie congregation that Tom is teaching at this morning, that I get to be here with you, that worships God, that opens up their scriptures because, that is a reality because the Boulder campus decided to become radically generous and plant a community in Erie. And as we Erieites think about what's next, we are so excited that we get to partner with the Boulder campus and the Erie campus together to do what God might be calling us to do next, perhaps in the city of Thornton. And so it is a joy to see what God might be doing, to call us to do, to continue to make disciples, empower leaders, and multiply the church so the glory of God, his name, would be famous everywhere. It's also a joy to be in Boulder. I was born and raised in Boulder. I graduated from the University of Colorado. Go Buffs! And I love this campus. Love this campus. And if you're new, we're in an Advent season talking about four themes of Advent. Advent just simply means arrival. And the arrival is which the church has set aside a, a season on their calendar to focus on the arrival of Christ's first coming, this babe in a manger. And as Christians, as we live kind of on this side of Christmas, we live between the Advents, between the coming of Christ as a baby and as a suffering servant, the work accomplished on the cross, and then as we look forward and we post our hope into the arrival of his second coming to restore all things and make them new. And so we live between the Advents. And the church calendar has set aside this season around Christmas to look at probably four, maybe five historical themes. Mark opened up and we talked about the theme of hope the first week. Pastor Tom opened up last week the scriptures and we talked about the theme of joy. And today I want to open up the scriptures and talk about the theme of love. And then next week we'll talk about the theme of peace. This theme of love, I mean, when you hear the word love, there's probably a lot of things that come to your mind. In fact, there's so many things that come to our minds that we, we start asking, you know, Am I a loving person? Am I easy to love? Grade yourself on, on a scale of like really good to really bad. How good or bad are you at loving others? Okay, you got that? Next question. On a scale of easy to really hard, how easy or hard is it for others to love you? It's like, it's hard. It's just hard. See, when we talk about love, there's so many ideas that come up about love. Think about ourselves as, do we love well? Are we easy to love? And we start asking ourselves, okay, what, what qualifies as love? What do you mean by that? We start to start defining what love is because in our English-speaking culture, we don't define love very well. Now, if you're going to the New Testament that was written in Greek, they have several words for love. Talk about brotherly love, talk about uh, affectionate love, talking about erotic love, all sorts of different kinds of love. But in English, we just have one word for love, and so it's, it's kind of hard to define it, to even grade ourselves if we're easy to love or if we love well. And so it, in our language, we say things like, I love Christmas, and I love my wife, and I love cookies. And you're wondering, well, which one do you love the most? I mean, is that the order of your love? Do you love cookies more than you love your wife, Kristen? And I would say, no way. I love my wife, Kristen, the most. She makes the best cookies. 
But even that's just kind of confusing. Like, just using this word of love, how do we define it and how do we grade ourselves on it? And then if you start thinking about this word love, there kind of rises up in us a sense of fear. Are we lovable? Do people love us? Am I loved? For those in the room who are married, I want you to think back to your very first date. For those of you who are not married, middle school, high schoolers in the room, maybe some college people, one day you will have this first date with someone that you hope to be your future spouse. And some things will go in your mind that's basically equate to this. I can't show up as I am, otherwise that person might not love me. And so you try to increase your lovability. And so you dress up. I mean, those LuLaRoe pants ain't cutting it on the first date. And so you put on a nice outfit. And for guys, you're going to go find a shirt that has buttons on it, that has all the buttons on it, because you need to dress up, clean up. And some ladies put makeup on. Why? Because we're trying to make up for what we think we're lacking. That, that causes us not to be lovable. And so we dress up, clean up, make up to present ourselves to someone that they might fall in love with us. But that preys on a fear. That if someone can fall into love with us, what does that mean? Could they fall out of love with us? And so we have to have this continual relationship of putting ourselves on our best behavior all the time, it seems like. So that people will always see us as lovable. You see how thwarted our ideas of love is? How it's hard to define it? How it's hard to get our fans around it? We don't even know what love really is. And so to define what love is in this Christmas season, that seems to be about all this like cheer and joy and love. We're going to look at the gold standard of love, which is God himself. And we look towards God, not because he is lovely or he's loving, but because God is love. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4 that God is love. You're going to define him. You're going to describe him. You want to know what he is, who he is. God is the definition, the gold standard of perfect love. And so we're going to look at what God's love is like so that we can better understand what love is. And then how we might conform to that love and love others with that same kind of love. Now we're going to look at one verse to be able to see what God's love is. So pretend with me for a moment. You get playoff tickets to an NFL playoff game. And you are going to go down to McGuckin's. You're going to get yourself a poster board. And you're going to write one verse on the poster board because you're sitting behind the goalposts. What verse are you going to write on this poster board? John 3.16, that's exactly right. There you are, my friend. John 3.16, behind the goalposts. Now let's say you're a famous race car driver, and you want everyone behind you who's eating your dust to know what you're all about. What verse do you put on your bumper? John 3.16, put it right down here on the, the bottom left. Now here's the thing. You determine you're going to do some vandalism for Jesus. You're going to vandalize some things for Jesus. And you decide to paint one verse on the side of someone else's property. What verse are you putting on? John 3.16. You are painting John 3.16 up on the wall. Now here's a question. If 
if you're the Denver Broncos, most famous quarterback of all time, and you're going to put one verse on your eye black, what verse do you put on? John 3.16. Of course, John 3.16, without a doubt. Now some of you are going, wait, time out. Did you say most famous quarterback, and you put Tim Tebow up there? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. We all know that Tim Tebow is not the most famous Denver quarterback. It's obvious. Number seven, the California kid, Craig Morton, is the number one Denver Brown quarterback. He led him to the first Super Bowl. Come on. Is this like too old for everybody? All right, sorry. But you're going to put John 3.16. Why? Why would you choose John 3.16? I mean, if, if you were to put that on a poster somewhere, hang it up on a wall somewhere, most of the world actually doesn't even know what 3.16 means. So why would you use this verse? It's because it is the greatest verse in the scriptures, I think, that portray to the world who God is, what God's about, and how he thinks of you. That's what it is. John 3.16 is who God is, what he does, and what he thinks about you. What does John 3.16 say? John 3.16 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That's what the verse says. And so I want to unpack what this verse says so that we have a more robust understanding of God's love for us and how our love can conform to God's. Now, it starts with the word for. And whenever you see the word for, therefore, so that, because in your Bible, it should be a clue to you to start reading the context before it. Because whatever's about to be said is built on something. It comes out of something. Maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it's a teaching. Maybe it's an episode. There's something that has come before in which this is probably the conclusion of that statement. And so if you've got your Bible, we're going to go to John chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to see an unusual context in which a Pharisee, a religious leader of the day, has come to Jesus to ask some questions. A man named Nicodemus shows up. And he doesn't come in the middle of the day. He doesn't come when the crowds are gathered. No, there's something going on where he's perhaps a bit embarrassed to be found with Jesus. But he has some questions that need to be answered. And so Nicodemus comes in the middle of the night, once no one's going to see him, talk to Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here comes Nicodemus and perhaps he's heard some of the teachings of Jesus. Perhaps he's heard about some of the miracles of Jesus. Or maybe he's seen with his own eyes Jesus do incredible things. These signs and wonders. And so he shows up to, to ask this question. Is Jesus really the Messiah? This is what he wants to know in his mind. Is Jesus the promised one of God who's going to save Israel, restore Israel, and make all things new again? And he comes to Jesus at night, and he has the most peculiar question. He says, okay, not, sorry, not a peculiar question, a poignant question, asking Jesus, how does one inherit the age to come? It's a very Jewish way of asking about eternal life. God, how is it that you get eternal life? 
And we know that God one day is going to do away with this present age and bring in an eternal new age to come in which there is no sin, there's no evil, there's no wrongdoing. All tears have been wiped. All wounds have been mended. And we want to know what does it take, what's it look like for an individual to participate? How does one get into the age to come, eternal life? And then Jesus tells him, well, one must be born again. It'd be reborn. And Nicodemus is mind like, what, what are you talking about? I mean, I'm a grown adult man. I mean, can I climb into my mother's womb again to be reborn? And you're like, Nicodemus, what were you thinking? I mean, that's so far out there. I mean, thanks for the visual, but no thanks, you know. And Jesus says, no, 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 Nicodemus. You have to be born from above, where God dwells. You must be born of both spirit. Like, you're born of flesh, but you have to be born of spirit and of truth. A new birth has to come. A new birth that brings you into the family of God. And this must come from above. Only God can make this birth happen. C.S. Lewis, in his famous works, Mere Christianity, points out the emphasis of this is why Jesus came. This is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. This is why we get so excited about Christmas, is that God sent his son on mission. This is what C.S. Lewis says. The son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That God himself becomes a man, takes on flesh, and dwells among us so that men and women can become sons and daughters in the family of God to inherit eternal life, the age to come. Nicodemus is hearing that Jesus is saying, this is why I'm here. I have come from above for this purpose, which goes back to John 3.16. So this is the context in which Jesus is answering, giving this John 3.16 comments on the conversation of eternal life. How does one inherit eternal life? But he says this, for God so loved the world that he gave. And we look at this so loved, Craig Keener, New Testament scholar, points out the so loved isn't the how much God loved, but how well God loved. We often say this to people, God loved the world so, so, so much. But this so loved is not how much God loved, but how well God loved. How well did he love? He loved that he gave his only son. This is the kind of love that God is giving here at Christmas time. And so to get that kind of context, Jesus is going to pull on an Old Testament story, a peculiar Old Testament story found in Numbers chapter 21 that happens during this Exodus wilderness season. Next is 21, there's this weird episode in which the people of God have committed evil against God. And God, in his right judgments, sends in these venomous snakes and bites all these people. And then God calls Moses, says, I don't want any people to die, even though they've been judged, I don't want them to die. So he has them fashion a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and have it stood up, exalted, raised up in front of the people. And whoever looked at this bronze serpent would live. Check out John chapter 13. Sorry, chapter 3, verse 13 and 14 and 15, right before 3.16. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He goes all the way to Numbers and says, okay, everything that you saw in the Exodus, remember it was all signposts pointing to me. Remember this episode in which people were bit by a poisonous snake? 
they were infected with this disease that was going to kill them. And it wasn't their cleverness, their strength, their, their knowledge of medicine that could save them. Only one thing. God graciously, freely gives a remedy. And the remedy is not built on people being able to receive it because of how smart they are or how strong they are. They simply have to look. Look, that's it. It's as easy as possible. If you would look up at God's provision, you'd be safe. It says, in the same way as this serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up as well. That Jesus Christ is probably speaking of two, two, two episodes. One, in which he's lifted up on the cross. That he is executed on the cross and lifted up for all to see, saying, King of the Jews. And what's so amazing is that he looked like our sin, did he not? That he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That he was lifted up on the cross, executed and crucified for our sins. He took our sins on him. And all those who would look up to God's gracious provision would be saved. So it's talking about his lifting up in his execution. But after his death and resurrection... There's a, there's a point in which he is brought back to his rightful position, the right hand of God, his exaltation. And so that's where we look at Jesus today is he's exalted high and above, a name above all names, in glory, interceding for us with the Father. And so he is lifted high and above. And Jesus is saying, as the people of Israel were infected with a deadly disease, and God made a gracious provision for them, so too I have come down from heaven. That all who would look to me would be saved. Would be saved. That's the love that God has. It costs him something. And he gives his very own precious, one, only one, son. He gives his best gift to the least deserving. You see that? He gives his best gift to the most undeserving group of people. Paul fills us in on this. In Romans chapter 5, when he's writing to the church in Rome. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son in love when we were unlovable. Before we had dressed up, before we had cleaned up, before we had made ourselves up, God said, oh, I love them. I love them. And I am going to send my son to save them. That's the kind of love that God has. It's so different than our kind of love. I mean, think, of it, think Christmas is coming, T minus so many days or so. Who is going to receive your best gift this Christmas? probably the person that has loved you the best this year. I mean, if you're like me, the person who's going to receive my best gift is the person who has loved me the most, which is going to be my wife, Kristen. So when I think about, when am I going to get Kristen? I, I think I'll probably just get her, you know, my usual 8 to 10 carat diamond bracelet or something. Hopefully that'll be enough. Some of you guys are like, how much do you make? Like, man, ministry's good. Ministry is good. I'm just kidding. But imagine that Whatever my best gift is, whatever your best gift is, I go to Kristen and I say, hey, I know that you usually get my best, but I have an idea. Instead of giving it to you, remember that person that scammed us? 
that stole our identity, drained our bank accounts, and caused a huge headache this entire year, we should give them that gift. She's like, are you crazy? That person ruined our life. That person hurt us. Why would we give them anything? And here God says, what's God's love like? How well does he love? When we were unlovable, God sent his son, Christ, to die for us. That's the kind of love. It's so different than our kind of love. Back to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe. God so loved the world and whoever in the world believes. Everyone in the world is able to receive this gift. Now, remember, you're Nicodemus, you're a leader of Israel, and who do you think God loves the most? Us, baby! Israel! God loves us. He's laid his affection on us. He loves us far more than he loves them and those people. And here Jesus probably blows Nicodemus' mind when he says, God so loved the world, Nicodemus. The world. God so loved the world. My love encapsulates the world. Only Christianity is so audacious to claim that God's love is wide enough to encapsulate the world. That it's not buried into an ethnicity. It's not buried into a race. It doesn't belong to a specific gender. It belongs to the world. And God says, I love the world so much that whoever in the world believes This is open to whoever. You don't have to be the perfect person, the right person. You don't have to be all cleaned up. It's whoever believes. Aren't you so thankful that John 3.16 says the world and whoever? It doesn't say God so loved the smart. God so loved the accomplished. God so loved the beautiful. God so loved the strong. God so loved those who are taller than six feet. Because I'm none of those things. And yet God so loved the world. You know what that means? It means you can put your name right here. God so loved Janice. God so loved Daniel. That he gave his only son. So that Janice and Daniel would have the opportunity to believe. So if if Jesus is the remedy, he is the one who is lifted high in which we are looking to for our salvation, what does it mean that we believe? What does it mean that we would believe? I mean, here it says that the remedy is Jesus and the access is belief. So we want to make sure that we understand this belief properly. Because the scriptures also say that the demons believe, but they're not coming into eternal life. So what is saving faith? What is saving belief? Well, I think think it can be explained in short order. Just a few verses later, in John chapter 3, near the end, John chapter 3, verse 35 and 36, says this. The Father so loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so what John does at the very end is he ties this belief to obedience. You see that? So whoever believes has eternal life. But then he doesn't say those who don't believe don't have eternal life. 
He says those who don't obey. So belief has to do with obedience. Now, what does that have to do for us? It means this. That of course you're saying, yes, I believe in who Jesus says he was. Yes, I believe that God raised him from the dead. And then I love his teachings. I love his ways. They produce life in me. And so I'm always asking, God, what do you have to say about this? Because whatever you have to say about this issue in my life, speaking to my finances, speaking to my marriage, speaking to my family, speaking to my sexuality, speaking to everything, and show me your ways because I believe in you and I want to do what you're asking me to do. If you're someone who says, I believe, and then Jesus calls and says, okay, follow me here. And you have no desire to follow Jesus. I wouldn't say you believe. The belief is recognizing who he is. And that his words are life, friends. And so I want to follow all his ways. That's what it means to believe. Is you love the ways of Jesus. And you want them to be your ways in life. Now the end here says, those who do not believe and obey, the wrath of God remains on them. The wrath of God, okay, this is like a Christmas text. I mean, you're a guest preacher, what are you doing talking about God's wrath? Because it's actually in John 3.16. So go back to John 3.16. that He gave his son so that anyone who believes would not what? Would not perish. This perishing is summed up at the end of John as still having the wrath of God on you. And so for those in the room going, okay, you've lost me. I mean, you had me with God is love. And you could have just stopped right there. But now you're talking about God with wrath and anger towards something. I don't believe in that. I only believe in a God who is loving. There's no wrath in him. Let me, let me tell you something. If God did not have wrath, he would not be loving. If he did not have wrath, he would not be love. Now you're like, I, you're going to have to help me on that one. I've never even heard that before. So let me just kind of peel apart this a little bit. Because I want you to see John 3.16. That the wrath of God is his attitude towards evil. And so here's kind of a working definition that I want you to have in your mind. God's wrath is his right and fitting response to evil. It's his right and fitting. It doesn't mean that it's his overreaction. It's not his underreaction. He doesn't show up early. He doesn't show up late. He's not just like flying off the handle. He's not moody. His wrath is his right and fitting response to the evil he sees being done in his good created world. And so we're told that God is our father, which makes us his children. So maybe if we put like a parent hat on to kind of get some of this, it might help. So imagine that you're a parent, a father or a mother, and your child comes to you, and they tell you that someone has hurt them, abused them, caused evil to them. As a good and loving parent, what happens inside of you? Does not mama bear, papa bear, is aroused in your heart? Like, who did this to you? Was it Thomas? I knew he was dirty, rotten guy. I knew you shouldn't hang out with him. I mean, as a parent who loves their child, you want to go address the evil 
that's happened in their life. Do you not? In fact, if you were unloving towards your child, you might say, ah, come on, get over it. Life's tough. Suck it up. But a loving parent, something is aroused in them. Think about also, maybe the evil didn't come and hurt your child, but the evil seems to exist inside your child. They're making decisions that's harming themselves, and it's causing addictions. You can see their physical body, their spiritual sense, like just wasting away. And as a parent, how do you respond? Don't you just want to reach in there and just like, I just want to pull out all those lies. I want to pull out the, the alcoholism. I want to pull out the drug abuse that you'd be free you love your kid. Growing up in my adolescence, man, I was an ornery, ornery dude. I had one mission, my mom said, burn the world down. That was it. I was interested in just burn the world down. And there became a time going from middle school to high school where my parents determined that I could no longer live at home. And so they put me on a Greyhound bus and I rode up to a place in Montana and I remember sitting on this Greyhound bus, long ride up to Montana. Why do they hate me? Why would they do this to me? Why would they remove me from my friends, my community, my school? And now as an adult, you look back, and what you thought was wrath, man, how they loved me. I mean long, costly love. Oh, how they loved me. You see, wrath is tied up in our love. It is a right and fitting response to evil. John Stott writes a little section on the wrath of God and how different it is from our wrath, what gets us all angry. John Stott says this, God's anger is poles apart from ours. What provokes our anger injured vanity, never produces his. What provokes his anger, evil, seldom provokes ours. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we'll take evil, put it into shows and movies, and entertain ourselves with it. God can't stand it. And he wants to remove it. And so when he says that no one would perish, here, here's all summed up. It's really, really easy. God says, I love the world so much that what I'm going to do is one day in the age to come, I'm going to perish all of evil. All of sin, all the ways that we've hurt each other, all the tears that we've shed, racism, sexism, we're going to perish it all so that it will never exist in eternal life. Yes, but wait, all that evil, well, that came from me, and that comes from you. And so you're hurt and you're wounded because I've said things, and I've done things that has caused pain in your life. And God has to address that in his love. And you've said things, and you've done things that have caused pain in my life. And God will have to address that in his love. And so how does he, this is the big question, how does he perish evil without letting me perish? It's Jesus. That's why Jesus came down. Jesus is the good surgeon. Imagine this, you have a, you have a loved one. Probably don't have to think too hard about this. Has cancer. Someone in your family has cancer. And unless the cancer is addressed, both cancer and the person will perish. It's really easy to just perish cancer if you don't care about the person. But if you go to a good doctor and they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. 
We're going to address the cancer so that we can separate it from you so that you can live. That's what Jesus is. He's addressing the evil in each of our hearts to separate it from us, nailing it on the cross, so that we would never be separated from him. That's what he's doing. And so in his right and fitting love response to evil, he comes. He says, okay, I'm going to separate it for all who would look at me and believe so that they would never be separated from God. That's his love for us. It's so different than our love for each other. Back to John 3.16. He ends it with this, not only will they not perish, not have this terrible consequence, but this is how good God is. He's going to gift us. He has something good in return, eternal life. All the things that you would hope for and long for. King David says in Psalm 16, your ways are life. That in your presence is the fullness of joy. And in your right hand, pleasures forevermore. That eternal life isn't just the life you live today, unending. I don't know how good today is going to be, but if it was just today, unending, that's a bad deal. Eternal life is the fullness of life. Everything you would hope for. Forever. It's the fullness and foreverness of life that God has come to bring through his son, Jesus Christ. And so he rewards us with eternal life, co-heirs with Christ. If he, who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for all of us, will he not also give us all things? Eternal life he gives us in place of perishing. Man, how awesome is God's love for us. John 3, 16 shows us four things about God's love. Here are four things that we learn about God's love for us. God's love is a sacrificial gift. It costs God to love us. It costs him his own son. God's love draws near. It doesn't just distance himself from people who are messy, unlovable, that he actually draws near and comes into our world and takes on flesh and walks with us in the mess. But it also is honest, and it draws out. His love is honest with us, and it draws us out of perishing into eternal life. And this love is forever. His love is forever. That those who are in relationship with God for eternity would never hear God say, I've just kind of fallen out of love with you. Ever! 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 That is his love, the sacrificial gift that draws near, that draws us out, that lasts forever. Now, this is God's love. And if if you're in the room and you don't know God yet, simply come to him. This is perfect love. And what does perfect love do? It casts out all fear. You should have no fear to look to Jesus. He longs for you to look to him, that you'd be saved. Now, if, if you've already done that and you're a Christian in the room, Okay, this next piece is for you. If you're not a Christian yet, that's okay. You're off the hook from what comes next. Because for Christians in the room, what is our desire? To be conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus. So that our love would be conformed, molded, and shaped into this love. That's our goal. We believe and we want to follow that we would be conformed to look like God's love. And so we have to ask ourselves, particularly in the Christmas season, when we're around people that are 
perhaps more challenging to love, perhaps people that you don't invite very often around the house. How is it that I can love like this? And who is God calling me particularly to love like this? So let's walk through it. Who is it in your life that you said, I will no longer love? It's too costly. It costs me to love them. And so you have not loved them well because you have been unwilling to make the costs. And you need to say, God, I want to be conformed to the image of your son. And so, Lord, teach me to love this person, whoever is in your mind, with the same love that I received from you. I just want to reflect the love that I got from you. I want to give to this person. Or how about this person over here? I mean, you need to draw near. You've distanced yourself from them. You've caused there to be a distance. And you've actually removed yourself from relationship. And you have to look at God's love and say, no, God's love draws back near. You say, okay, I love God. And so, Lord, teach me, teach me. How is it that I can draw near instead of distance myself? They're hard to love. But I want to love them like you loved me. Oh, this one draws out. Someone that you can have an honest conversation with what's going on in their life. That in a loving way, you would help draw them out of a habit, of an addiction, of a life that they too would be able to experience freedom. And who in your life you just want to give up on? Let's just be really honest. If you could walk away today, you would. It's so easy to walk away. We say, no, I want to be conformed into the love of my Savior. And so, Lord, would you teach me, show me, give me the strength to love this person, to be faithful to this person, and not walk away because you didn't walk away from me. Who is that? for you. How do we love like that? Like Christians. Like Christ- the world doesn't love like this. Christians are called to love like this. What if we were a community of people that loved like this? John actually kind of sums all this up in 1 John chapter 4 when he says this. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's love. I hope you have a good picture of God's love for you. And then we as Christians would conform our love to his. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who is love. Lord, thank you for giving us the definition and standard of what love is. Lord, I pray for every single person in this room who's been having a really hard year, a hard season, a hard week, or those who feel discouraged or grieving, that the love of Christ would draw especially near, that you as the God of all comfort would comfort them. And then, Lord, would you mold us and shape us as a community of women and men that have this same audacious love for the world. May it draw all people to you. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of sending your son, Jesus Christ, to save us, to forgive us, and bring us into eternal life. Amen.